Go ahead and open up your Bibles to Mark chapter 7. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 23. Before we jump into it, uh, you might have already, if you weren't here last week and heard a little bit of the explanation, might be a little confused and be like, wow, we're, we're covering a passage that is chronologically previous to what we covered last week. What's going on here? And yes, we are going back a little bit in time. Uh, and that's because of the boiler, and uh, we were having leaking water. We had to cancel one of the morning services here two weeks ago, and we thought we could just shift all of the, the sermons and the order and everything just down two weeks, but that didn't work because Pastor Preston was gone today with the teens to Camp Barakel, and so we ended up having to switch our passages around. And so uh, that's why uh, we talked about the last portion of Chapter 7 uh, last week, and then today we're going to be talking about the first part of chapter 7. But I think you guys are mature and smart enough to be able to deal with this. Uh, another thing I wanted to point out from this chapter, chapter 7, begins a significant shift in Jesus' ministry. Again, last week, uh, Pastor Preston was talking about how Jesus was going to uh, Tyre and Sidon, the Decapolis region, uh, and it was a Gentile area. And we know that Jesus' primary a ministry audience when he came was to the Jews. That's who he came to give the, the good news of the kingdom to primarily. And, and so in knowing that, we see him intentionally going to Tyre and Sidon and, and we, to the Gentile areas. And so we have to, we're like, wow, okay, so Jesus is foreshadowing, I think, one of the great truths of the gospel is that the gospel is not just for uh, the Jews, it's for the Gentiles, it's for every tongue, tribe, and nation, and for that reason, all of us need to say amen, because I don't know if we have any Jews here today. This concerns us in a very personal sort of way, and so this is a significant shift, a chapter in um, uh, Mark that shows that shift in Jesus's ministry. I also want to point out one other thing real quick before we really start jumping into and to this passage is I want you to look in your Bibles. Unlike Sunday school this morning, John Johnson, wherever you are, we are going to have you open your Bibles because I didn't make printouts for you. So go to Mark chapter 7, verse 16. It's really important. And whenever you find it, raise your hand. Mark seven sixteen. Did you find Mark seven sixteen? Okay, keep looking. I'm waiting for everyone to raise their hands. We got a couple of hands out there. All right. Let's see. I'm going to pick on poor Kezi over there. Kezi, you're helping Abigail. Kezi was taking you so long. Have you found it? 716? What does 716 say? Crystal, do you want to read it for us real quick? What does Mark 716 say? Oh, okay, all right. Before everybody starts yelling, there's no 16, there is a 16. I'm just gonna pause this all for a second, take a deep breath. This is, what, this is one of those little pastor jokes we like to play on people. Find Mark 7, 16. If you have a King James or New King James Bible, you probably didn't have any problem finding Mark 7, 16. Poor Crystal, you can go ahead and sit down. I was just picking on you. Go, go ahead and have a seat, unless you would just want to stand the whole sermon, which is fine, too. For those of you who have uh, ESV or, or the New American Standard, Standard Bible or some other versions, you don't have Mark 7, 16. This is not a great scandal. I want to explain this real quickly, because, and it's important that we talk through these things, because uh, it's a lot of folks out there in the world like to say, hey, you think your Bible is infallible? Go find Mark 7, 16. It's here and it's not in here. Your Bible's wrong. And they'll use that to undermine young people in their faith, and, and that's not right. And so I want to explain to you just real briefly the reason that that Mark 7.16 is, is included in some scriptures and some is not. It's not a matter of a Bible verse that has been taken out. This isn't the great Da Vinci Code scandal. We're not finding any, you know, there's not a great uh, theological truth that we're missing as a result of this. But again, it's, it's less of a matter of a verse being taken out and it's more of this is a possibility of a verse being inserted in there. 
The question is, is should Mark 7.16 be in there at all? And uh, the reason we say that is because our oldest manuscripts that we have of the Greek New Testament do not include Mark 7.16. They don't have that. The, The copies of manuscripts that we have that are the most recent, that we have a whole lot of them, but they're not the oldest ones, do include that. And so it seems like taking the oldest manuscripts and then looking at this, it seems like a well-meaning scribe inserted this, uh, this verse into, for some reason or another, we don't really know. Uh, but either way, it doesn't change the meaning or the theology, the doctrine, or anything else. The passage, if, for those of you who do have Mark 7, 16 in your, uh, your Bible, it says, He who has ears, let him hear. This is a, a biblical refrain that you see throughout Scripture of saying, Those of you who are people and have ears, you need to listen. And I think we can all agree that that is a scriptural thing to say, regardless of whether it's found in Mark 7, 16 or not, right? Right, all right. So so even though it's not necessarily there, I want you to still do what it it says. All right, that's that's the point there. So we have a real humdinger of a topic this morning. And the sister account of this passage in Matthew 15, the Pharisees went away greatly offended And the disciples uh, just didn't understand. This seems like, again, one of those things we see repeatedly. Um, Pharisees and scribes, angry, upset, offended. Disciples are like, we don't even know what just happened. You know, you see this repeatedly, and this is no different today. But I hope this morning that neither one of these responses will be true of us. And I pray that we will understand and uh, that we will, even though that God's word will, I'm sure, offend us, that we won't walk away as the Pharisees and scribes did in our offense. I pray that that offense will be something that draws us to understand Scripture better and draws us to the heart of God. And so our topic today, uh, as was mentioned a little bit earlier, Debbie was, uh, was sharing a little bit, uh, so maybe you don't need the drum roll, but our topic today is tradition. Tradition. Or if you've seen Fiddler on the Roof, everybody sing it with me. Tradition. Here we go. That's right. So the definition of tradition is pretty simple. It's a long-established custom or a belief that has been passed on from one generation to another. Uh, I think this is a basically good definition. Uh, I would would expand on, there's nuances to that. I don't even know if a tradition has to have a generational passing of it. We can have traditions that are started and kept just in, within that one generation. I don't think it demands the generational passing to become a tradition is the only uh, you know, additional comment I would have on that definition there. But you know, it sounds innocent enough. It's a long-established customer belief that has been passed on from one generation or another. Now, we are literally surrounded by traditions, and I don't just mean here in the church. Don't let anyone tell you that traditions is something that just like church people do. Uh, We are all creatures of habit. Uh, Just a month ago, we had one of those big global, one of the largest traditions that we do in the world, and it was Christmas. It's celebrated by Christians and and atheists alike. A lot of people celebrate Christmas, and that's not just because we are celebrating Christ's birth. There's Santa Claus, trees, stockings, mangers, lights, carols, presents, 12 days of Christmas, downtown walking. Poor Linda Marvin has to walk with my family every year as we go through singing at the top of our lungs the 12 day of Christmas song as we go through all the lights. Uh, That's part of our tradition there. Uh, There's holiday traditions of all sorts. There's wedding traditions. Uh, Don't get me started on that. You know, the the dresses, the vows, the church, the pastor. This is crazy. People who don't even go to church and don't even have a pastor want a church and a pastor involved in their weddings a lot of times. It blows my mind. But it's a lot of that that tradition. They like to throw rice, blow bubbles, uh, light sparklers, uh, you know, a lot of different things. This was interesting. In Greece, they have a tradition that you spit on the bride. Glad we don't do that one. Thankfully, in the modern times, they stop spitting, but they still many times will make the noise without spitting. I think, I think that's okay. But anyways, uh, one of those traditions. Uh, sports traditions. 
smack the ceiling above the tunnel on the way out as you're going out on the field. Uh, running through, you know, the cheerleaders make the, the paper sign and all the players run through it, and, you know, and, and they're all just like ready and psyched up to go out on the field. Dousing a winning coach with water, Gatorade, the icy water. You know, it's like these are all traditions in sports. There's new baby traditions. Um, for for first-time fathers, you know, you find out you're going to have a kid, and, and, you know, it used to be more of a tradition. The, the father and the, the buddies would all go out, and they'd smoke a, a, a cigar or something. Uh, you know, sometimes uh, there's gender reveal parties now. These are blowing my mind, quite literally, because they involve explosions more than they ever have in the history of man. You're blowing up something pink or something blue, and people are getting hurt in these gender reveal parties. But, you know, it's another one of those traditions that is, is, uh, is developing here. In India, get this, there's a, there's a new baby tradition where you would drop a baby off of a 50-foot balcony and men down below would catch it uh, with a sheet. Get that? I mean, this is a newborn baby dropping it off a 50-foot balcony and they're catching it. I think it was 400 thread count at least. You know, can you even imagine? Uh, anyways, just weird, but you know, okay. Uh, in Spain, there is a tradition, where it's called La Tomatina, I think, something along those lines, world's largest tomato fight. Some guys were brawling, found some tomatoes, started throwing them at each other. They were like, hey, let's make this tradition. This is fun. And so now every year they have the world's largest tomato fight. And so I want to highlight now that while, you know, some traditions are certainly weird and downright crazy, they are not traditions in and of themselves necessarily evil and wrong and sinful. They can at times be good. For instance, each January, I go to each one of my smoke alarms and I change the batteries in it. I think that is a very good tradition. Um, each night, my family prays and thanks God for his provision before we eat together. Uh, the Wednesday before Thanksgiving, we as a church collectively gather at Pi Prayer and Praise to thank God and his providence for us collectively as the body of Christ here. Uh, we gather every Sunday to worship and pray and hear from God's word together. And you may not realize it, but even in these things, these activities have a lot of traditions packed into them. And they're not all bad. Traditions are the rhythms and patterns of life that we organize our lives around. They are a mix of the manner and customs that the previous generation has passed on to us, handed to us, and then we add our own slight, sometimes major twists and interpretations to them to make them ours. They help bring order to the chaos of life and remind us of the things that we value, the things that we hold dear. Uh, traditions highlight the, and, you know, the things that bring purpose and meaning to our lives. Uh, traditions are the things we do because they are important enough to do repeatedly either for religious or social or sometimes uh, just practical reasons, or sometimes we might just find enjoyment within it. Now, while we like to make fun of traditions, I think we've all had our fun with traditions at some time or another, uh, usually it's other people's traditions. Isn't it the case? It's really easy to make fun of other tra people's traditions, and it's a little more sensitive when people start making fun of, fun of our own. The traditions we hold to, the ones that we've adopted, are ones we consider important, sometimes even sacred. They have a way of burrowing deep within our hearts and become deeply personal to us. There are emotional connections that are made with these practices, with these customs, with these places, with these peoples, these different things. And it is for this very reason that traditions, while they can start in a seemingly innocent manner with good intentions, they can quickly develop into something altogether different, especially traditions in the church. Instead of aiding us in our walk with God, they can quickly become a distraction and eventually morphing into an actual idol, spiritually blinding us from God altogether. In our passage today that we're going to be reading through in Mark 7, Jesus is questioning and confronting traditions head on. And I want to be very clear is that I don't think personally that Jesus is trying to destroy traditions. I don't think he's saying, you know, this, is, this word is anathema. You can't say tradition, you can't have tradition. He's not adding it to the Ten Commandments and say, thou shalt not tradition. I don't think that's what Jesus is saying here. 
But I think Jesus does want us to put traditions in their proper place, particularly in relation to God's commands. Traditions had become overly important and inflated. Instead of the traditions pointing uh, the, the Jews to God and to Scripture, reminding them of it, their traditions has started to take the place of Scripture, usurping God's commands, completely blinding them to who God is and what he desired from them. So, after saying that, you know we're taking on traditions today. I think it's appropriate that we pray. So let's bow together. Father, uh, this is, I think, a topic close to your heart, Lord, because as Jesus, we will see in a moment in this passage, he takes on traditions head on. Because, Lord, they, they played a, a part, a negative part in the Israelites' worship of you that undermined it and kept them from worshiping you the way that you wanted and desired. It kept them from seeing your scripture and the saving power that it had. And they developed a religion that was completely different from what you told them about, what you shared with them and, and what you had called them to. And so God, help us now. Help me now, Lord, that if there is any offense to be had, it's not from me and my words and my little soapboxes that I tend to have. Lord, I pray if there's any offense, it's from you and from your word. And it's done from a heart of, of turning people from, from their idols, from our idols, from my idols, Lord. We are all in the same boat when it comes to this danger. And so, Lord, I pray that you will give us wisdom, that you will give us humility, and that uh, we will see you, Lord, for the love that you have for us, your people. You will help us to understand ourselves better as sinners and see the depth of our sin, the depth of how we want to have control. And so, Lord, I pray that you will open up your word to our hearts so that we might not sin against you, so that we can reflect your glory and share your goodness, Lord. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. So Mark, chapter 7, verses 1 through 15, minus 16, starting back up on 17 through 23. Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots, copper vessels, and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the traditions of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your own tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles father and mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corbin, that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father and mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and many such things you do. What defiles a person? That's the, sorry, I just read a chapter title. Huh, I did what John Johnson told me I shouldn't do. It's a good question, though. What defiles a purpose? Verse 14, and he called the people to him again and said to them, hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And we had entered the house and left the people. His disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from the outside cannot defile him? since it enters not his heart but his stomach and is expelled, and thus he declared all foods clean. 
And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All of these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. So remember, after we read this passage, the setting for this is, uh, you may remember three weeks ago, Britain Estes was sharing. Jesus walked on water on the Sea of Galilee as they were crossing. The, Jesus and his disciples are all now together on the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee, uh, going about the, the towns and, and teaching and healing many. And that's where this passage picks up. In verse 1 it says, The Pharisees gathered to Jesus, uh, which they did quite often, but have a little new dynamic. I won't say new, but you don't see this quite as often as the Pharisees. You see the scribes who had come from Jerusalem. Now, we've seen them before, back in Mark 3, I think it was. These scribes from Jerusalem came, and they accused Jesus of being from uh, Beelzebul. They essentially said, you're doing all these things from the power of Satan and from evil. And so I can only imagine that when Jesus and his disciples saw these scribes from Jerusalem coming, since they already had previous encounters with them, I kind of got this like background music from a western, you know, with like these this, these uh, gunslingers and gang coming into town. It's like, you know, that kind of like, oh, here they come. We know, you know, it's om this ominous feeling because they've already engaged with them and it's already been, you know, negative. These people keep showing up and they keep accusing Jesus and his disciples of wrongdoing. And this is, this is, uh, continues to be the case. In verse 2, the, the scribes and the Pharisees, they stated they saw that some of the disciples ate with hands that were defiled and unwashed. Boom. I have a daughter who takes great joy in our home pointing out when people go around with defiled hands. I pride myself in washing my hands. I am a good hand washer, but there are times that I fail and I don't hand wash quite as thoroughly as I should. And I tell you, she's either listening in at the door of the bathroom or in another room, and she's like, did you wash your hands? Did you wash them for the full alphabet? And I'm like, no, and I'm running back. As the father, mind you, in my own home, running back to wash my hands. And, uh, you know, there's, there's one in every house. Don't raise your hands this morning, but we know who you are. So we have this issue that some of the disciples are not washing their hands before eating. And all of you germaphobes out there are probably taking sides with the scribes and Pharisees. Maybe these guys aren't so bad. Maybe they're onto something here. Uh, they might have a point. But let's take a moment and look at hand washing and, and eating in the Bible times because that's what it had to do, hand washing and, and they're eating without doing that. And so a basic hand washing before a meal would involve uh, someone putting their hands out uh, fingers up, starting off, and someone else would pour water uh, up to the wrists, you know, and make sure it covers them. And then the person would put their fingers facing down, palms down, do repeat the, th the process of pouring waters over their hands. And then the individual would take their fist and they would scrub each of the hands, the other hand with their, their fist there, and that's how they would clean their hands. Uh, the eating process probably is similar to how we eat today, There's, a, you know, although it looked a little bit different too. Though they had tables, they were short tables that they would recline next to many times. If you didn't have a table, sometimes it was a rug that was on the floor. There weren't necessarily utensils as we use utensils. Instead of eating with forks and knives, a lot of times people would eat with their hands. Uh, and using their hands, they would take a piece of, of bread sometimes, and they would use that to scoop from their plate or bowl or, or a community family-style bowl that was placed out for them. And so I, I say that because, uh, you know, you're like, wow, man, may, maybe hand-washing is important if you're eating with your hands the whole time and doing this as a kind of community bowl at times too. But the, the reason behind hand-washing was not for hygienic purposes. Germs were not uh, the issue in this situation. The hand washing wasn't for hygienic purposes as much as ceremonial reasons, which we're going to look out in a moment. So the scribes and the Pharisees weren't there simply to make a, an observation like my daughter Natalie likes to make about hand washing. So your hands are unwashed. They were there to accuse and condemn the disciples. Maybe they were doing it like Natalie. 
They were there to accuse and condemn the disciples of sinning. They were calling them out publicly, calling them sinners in front of everyone. You're not washing your hands, and you are sinners. Kids, this is your first point. Y'all can fill in the blank there. Washing hand helps get rid of germs, but not sin. This was not the first time the disciples were accused of wrongdoing. They were condemned because uh, they didn't fast like the Pharisees. They were condemned because they plucked heads of grain on the Sabbath and ate them. They were condemned because they ate with sinners and tax collectors. Disciples were accruing quite the rap sheet. And all of these attacks on the disciples were, of course, ultimately attacks on Jesus himself, reinforcing the religious leader's assertion that Jesus was not from God but was from Satan. How can you be from God when your disciples are committing all these sins? So what's the issue here? What's the big deal in this scenario? And I want to be very clear. You know, it's like, was Jesus, uh, was Jesus against washing hands? Should we, as in application to today's passage, say that we do not need to wash our hands before eating today? All the mothers at Calvary Baptist Church unanimously said, no, that is not the application. So what is the issue? What's the core issue here? The issue is, the problem is not that hand washing before dinner is bad. The problem is that the religious leaders were using the tradition of the elders as a foundational standard for determining what sin is. This is a problem. This is a big problem. Jesus said in verse 7, he says, you are teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Doctrines are the things that God has said. And you're saying all the things that people are saying, you're combining together, you're lumping together in that same group of things. You're teaching as doctrines the commandments of sin, the commandments of man. Now, in Gather and Grow on Wednesday nights, we have uh, a doctrinal aspect that we like to pinpoint, a catechism-like question we like to ask. And one of those has been, what is sin? And in, uh, feel free to read this together with me. We can all say together, uh, what does it mean to sin? Say it with me. To sin is to think, speak, or behave in any way that goes against God and his commands. That's right. That's our, that's our definition of sin. And there's a lot of nuances in unpacking that we can do, we can do with that. But let's, let's go and see what the, uh, go to the next screen here. This is what the uh, scribes and Pharisees were doing. They took that and they added, and the tradition of the elders. They changed the definition of what it means to sin and added in their own list of things. And so uh, we're going to look back in the Old Testament because there's this conflict. What did God say and what are you saying? Let's go back and bring clarity to the issue. And so we're going to go back into the Old Testament for a moment and see what God's commands to the Israelites truly were. What did God say in pertaining to hand-washing? And so we have to go all the way back to Exodus and Leviticus, and we see that hand-washing stems from God's commands to Aaron and his sons who served as priests in the tabernacle and temple. Now, Aaron and his sons were uniquely dedicated to God and were called to serve God in the temple and the tabernacle. They did not uh, go out. They weren't farmers. They didn't go out, and they weren't merchants. They weren't making money to buy food, and they weren't farming so they could make food. Uh, and so they, it's like, how are they going to get food? This is a big question for them. If they didn't work making food, how would they eat? And God provided for them by allowing them to eat a portion of the sacrifices that the Israelites brought to the tabernacle or to the temple. And so one instance of hand washing that we see in Leviticus, God was communicating with Aaron and his sons. He says, if you are to eat food that has been dedicated to me, this is how you are going to eat it. If you are clean, unclean, this is how you're going to become unclean so you can eat of this holy food that has been dedicated to God. In Leviticus 22, starting in verse 2 and then skipping to 6 and 7, 2 gives us the context. It says, speak to Aaron and his sons. That's who's commanded to do this. Speak to Aaron and his sons. The person, and it, then it goes through this whole list of things in the next few verses about what makes them unclean. We're skipping that portion. But then in verse 6, it says, The person who touches such a thing shall be unclean until the evening and shall not eat of the holy things unless he has bathed his body in water. Did that say hand washing? No, it wasn't even that precise. It said bathe her whole body in water. And when the sun goes down, he shall be clean, and afterwards he may eat of the things because they are his food. So there's the first instance. Second instance, Exodus 30, verse 17. And this is how Aaron and his sons were to conduct themselves in the tabernacle. 
The Lord said to Moses, you shall also make a basin of bronze. They're making a sink, essentially, with a stand of bronze for washing. You shall put it between the tent of meeting and the altar, and you shall put water in it, with which Aaron and his sons shall wash their hands and their feet. That wasn't even just hand washing. That was hands and feet. When they go into the tent of meeting or when they come near to the altar to minister to burn a food offering to the Lord, they shall wash with water so they may not die. They shall wash their hands and their feet so that they may, will, uh, may not die. It shall be a statute forever to them, even to him and to his offspring throughout all generations. So the point is, is did God command, command all the Israelites to wash their hands? No, he didn't. He commanded Aaron and his sons. We saw that repeatedly here. For what purpose? For eating food that was dedicated to God in the tabernacle and temple. And the second reason was for Aaron and his sons when they were ministering as priests in the tabernacle and temple. And so God, and his, uh, God told Aaron and his sons, the priests, to do these things. And somewhere along the line, it seems like God's command to Aaron and his sons was expanded to all the Israelites. Now I want to give you an illustration of how this same thing happens all the time. It happens in my t- own home quite often. I will pick on another one of my daughters. This is a great week with them, uh, three of them being up at Camp Barakel. So very often I have given instructions to one of my daughters, usually the oldest, clean up the room, put up the dishes. It doesn't matter what it is. I give her instructions, say, I want you to do this. And somehow that command is slightly altered to include the other girls. And so where I said, Nora, I want you to go and put up, you know, clean up your room, put up the dishes, she will then go to her sisters and say, girls, dad wants us to clean our room and put up the dishes. Did I say that? No, I did not say that at all. So you see how she's already altering a little bit of my my commands to her. And so what she has now done, she stated accurately what I wanted accomplished, but she has now transferred the responsibility of doing that onto them. And in the process of doing that, she has put her sisters in a moral conundrum because she is saying, Dad said we need to do this, and if the girls don't obey her, they are now in a moral conundrum of sinning themselves because they are disobeying what they think is a command from me, their father, which they need to obey. And so now, out of a fear of my wrath, they're obeying a command I never gave, but their sister gave to them. And usually, in my home, this ends up with a lot of fights, a lot of squabbling, a lot of yelling, and typically, the one simple task that could have been done in like five minutes after an hour of arguing still hasn't been accomplished. Does that sound like the church sometimes? My daughter wonders why I'm not happy. That's pretty much what happened here. The scribes and the Pharisees, they took God's command and what was directed to the priests in the tabernacle. They expanded it to everyone. They told them that that they didn't do it, then they were disobeying God. And they condemned anyone and everyone who failed to abide by their tradition. And that's why they they were calling the disciples sinners. Are you seeing the problem? They're saying, this is what dad said when dad never said that. The Pharisees and the scribes are essentially using the name of God in an attempt to steal the authority away from him. God is no longer determining what is good and right and what needs to be done and what is wrong. They are. That's the problem. Kids, your second little note there that you got to take is it's important to worship the right God in the right way. God says, I want your obedience I don't want you to go make up all kinds of other things you think will make me happy. I told you what will make me happy. Just do that. That will make me happy. That is true worship. Jesus' response to the Pharisees and scribes from Jerusalem was direct. It was confrontational, and it was extremely offensive to the scribes and Pharisees. He responded by quoting from Isaiah 29, 13. And he said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, you hypocrites. As it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. This is not worship. 
This is the furthest thing from worship. In vain do they worship me. It is meaningless. It means absolutely nothing. Teaching as doctrines the commandments of men, you leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. If I were to summarize that, Jesus essentially turning the table on, turning the dinner table on, the scribes by saying, my disciples aren't the sinners, you guys are. You guys, you're, not only are you sinners, you are so blind in your sin that you and everyone who follows you are going to be rooted out and are going to be as a weed in a garden. You are falling into a pit. You might say, Pastor John, I did not see that portion in the passage, you know, talking about you will be rooted out. I did not see that portion about falling into a pit of judgment in this passage. And you are right. If you turn to Matthew 15, and I'll have it up on the screen here for you, we see that Jesus is taking this very, very seriously. He says, uh, when the disciples came to him after this confrontation, they said, do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard the saying? And Jesus answered and said, every plant that my heavenly father has not planted will be rooted up. These men's traditions is not a sign of God working. This is a sign of something else that's not him. And because of that, that plant will be rooted up. And expands on that, let them alone they are blind guides, and if blind lead the blind, both will fall in a, into a pit. Jesus is speaking very strongly here. This is not just a simple matter of, do we wash the hands or not, you know, before dinner and, you know, sort of thing. This, this issue is huge. Jesus' response tells me that this seemingly simple matter of hand washing in man's traditions is not a small thing at all. The stakes are high. They are eternal. And the matter at hand is a gospel issue, a matter of heaven and hell. And if we don't get it right, we too will be plucked out as weeds. We too are in danger of falling into this pit, and everyone who follows us will follow, fall into that same pit as well. Whoever possibly added, verse 16, it says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. He might have messed up a little bit in there, I don't know, but he got it so right. We need to listen. I think this guy might have, just guessing in my own mind, this guy's probably reading through this, like, people need to hear this. And, you know, I kind of have that feeling sometimes too as a pastor, just like, how can you asterisk this? How can you get it out there? How can you bold the text so people listen to and see it more? I kind of feel like whoever's reading through this is like, we gotta get this right. This is a gospel issue, people. We can't afford to trade God's commands and God's great salvation for man's tradition. It's a gospel issue. There's hope over here. There's death and destruction over here. Can't afford to get this one wrong. I want you to look and see how this cancerous gospel-blinding progression of traditions, and I, I see it as progression. I can't guarantee this is why, it, why it's ordered this way is this way, but it, it seems interesting in my mind as I read through these few verses. It starts off in verse 7, and Jesus says, you're teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Saying, you're taking these commandments of men and commandments of God, and it seems like you're throwing them in a pool there together, where you have both of them. You see, there's still God, and then there's still these elders' uh, commands, throwing them together in this pool. And, and you're just like my daughters did with my commands. That seems like where it kind of starts. We have God's commands, they're still distinct from ours, but they're in this pool together. Verse 8, it says, but now you leave the commandment. You leave the commandment of God and hold the tradition of man. There's only one result that will happen when we put the traditions of man and the commandments of God side by side is that they don't fit. They can't fit. The wisdom of man and wisdom of God are at odds with each other, and we will have to choose. What are we going to more naturally choose? The commandments of men, because we can control them. We can make them we can interpret them. We can, we can call out people for breaking our commands. It's prideful. It breeds arrogance. There's all sorts of reasons why we like this. But the, the next logical step when God's commands and man's commands are together is that we start picking favorites. And the heart of man will not pick the heart of God. Does not. We're going to pick our traditions. Verse 9. Now you've chosen it's, it's no question now. You have now rejected the commandment of God to establish your own tradition. 
There's not even a semblance of God in his commands anymore. Now you have something that's completely different. You might throw in the name of God here and there, but it has nothing to do with God. Everything that you're doing is completely contrary to that. I think it's interesting that the scribes even recognized this when they confronted the disciples. They never said, you're breaking God's commands. They never even tried to even go that route. They said, you are breaking, you're going against the traditions of the elders. They didn't even contribute it to God at all. I don't know everything going on behind that statement, but I find that interesting. And then finally in verse 13 it says, you have voided the word of God by your tradition. You're not just rejecting it, you're actively fighting against it. And you have now taking, taken this, the word of God that guards us from sin, it protects us from the schemes of Satan, has the power of God to lead us to salvation, and, and they have now rendered that void. That's scary, to replace the one thing that can possibly save us and replace it with something else that we've built that has no hope of saving us at all. We just got ripped off majorly by trading the commandments of God for the traditions of men. Now moving on in verse 9, nine through 13. Jesus gives a specific example of how the traditions of the elders had voided the word of God. How has it voided the word of God? And Jesus, he says there's a lot of ways this happens, but he's given one important one here. And he says, in verse, starting off in verse 9, he says to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. He says, for Moses said, honor your father and mother, fifth commandment. And whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father and mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And many such things you do. So how did the traditions of the elders void the word of God? They took the fifth commandment, a very plain and clear commandment, to the children, honor your father and your mother. And just to be very clear, generally we like to use this as parents to our young kids and saying, you need to honor me and respect me. But this is, it is clear from this passage here, God's intent was not just for the young children to honor their mother and father while they were in the home. The intent was for all children to, at all stages of life to honor all of their parents. That's God's intent, no matter how old they are. There's no, no bearing on this. God intends for his children to honor their parents, all stages in life. And parents like to complain about how expensive it is to raise a child, right? Kids, older kids, mind you, like to complain about how expensive it is to care for their aging parents. They hear it a lot, how much time it takes, how much money it takes, effort, stress, all sorts of things. It's hard. I get it. I get it. And these kids, whether they were angry at their parents or just plain greedy or lazy, I don't know, but they decided that they didn't want to honor their parents anymore. And they took an Old Testament law that said that whatever is dedicated to God can't be used for other purposes. And so they would say, this money that I would have used for my, my poor sweet parents, but God needs it more, they would set it apart for God and then never give it to their parents and take care of them the way God has explicitly told them that they need to and do, and thereby totally rending the commandment of God null and void. They weren't doing the very thing God told them to do. This is a huge problem. Not only, this is the crazy thing, is there was a chance when you gave your, you committed your money as Corbin to God, you didn't necessarily give it to the temple or to the priest. It wasn't necessarily gone. It was just dedicated to God for somehow a reason. And a lot of people would use that in a way to maintain control of that money themselves. They were never really physically given it to anyone else. They still had it a lot of times. And you, so not only did they not honor God with this money by, uh, by actually giving it to God, they kept it from themselves. They didn't honor their parents either. You see both of these, th these things happening at the same time. And so the commandments of God and the commandments of man, which one are you going to pick? And people were saying, wow, I get to hold on to my money and not give it to my parents, and I'm okay with the priest and the temple if I do this? Good job. Let's do it. And that's what was going on. And many such things you do. 
Two commandments, love God, love people. If you love me, you will obey me. They weren't doing that. And if you love me, you will love others. If they can't love their own parents, how are they going to love others? You know, that's really the, the core of that question there. They were totally missing out on the point of God's word. And so Jesus is saying, not only are you, you are not dirty and unclean because your hands are de- dirty, there's a deeper problem than what is outside in hand washing. There's a deeper problem. And to emphasize this point, he continues on through verses 14 through 23. And we don't have time to really delve into this as deeply as, as I would like. But he's continuing to develop this idea that, that this sin is not from the outside. It's not your uncleanliness of hands. It's not these outside things that are, that are making you sinful and unclean before God. Now, going back to Mark 7, uh, chapter 7, 14 through 18, let's read through that real quick. It says, he called the people to him again and said to them, hear me, all of you, and understand, there is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable, and he said to them, then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from the outside cannot uh, defile him? Are you, get, are you getting this building, this, this idea that Jesus gave them? It's like, you're looking at all these things outside of you that will make you clean and undirty. People, you know, coming in contact with, with people in the marketplace or, you know, just all different sorts of things or maybe unclean things that you put in your body. Maybe that's how you get sin inside of you is by eating things that come into you eternally. He's like, nothing outside of you and nothing that you take from the outside and put inside of you is going to make you dirty. This is one of the great philosophical questions of all time is are people born basically good or evil? Um, you know, that's, that's one of those questions. Scripture does not, uh, this is not a question in Scripture. Let's just put it that way. But I think uh, Psalm 51.5 comes to mind. Sorry, I was going to keep going, but I was like, I think it's important to just reinforce that this is not a biblical question. David himself said, and sinned, I, was, uh, I was born into sin, and sin did my mother conceive me. He's like, I am, I am born with this, this sin problem right, right from the very start. I have this sin issue in my life. And I think part of the problem is the scribes and Pharisees thought that they were born good that they were part of God's people. They were raised in God's country. They were circumcised on the eighth day. They were keepers of God's temple. They were purveyors of God's commands. They thought that they were clean, and the only things that could make them clean was on the outside. Unclean people, unclean food, unclean hands, etc., etc., etc. And Jesus gave them the most lovingly offensive truth that there was. The only truth that could save them from their traditions the only truth that could save them from themselves. Mark 7, 21 through 23 says, For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts. This comes from me, not someone else. I can't blame, you know, the culture and the evil influence and culture and lack of education or a lack of health care or a lack of loving people all around surrounding me. It's like, yes, those are evil influences that affect us, but ultimately the problem is you take all those away. You have the perfect environment to be born. What happens? We choose sin. Who else had a perfect environment when they were born? Adam and Eve. What did they choose? Sin. What are we going to choose? Sin. I shouldn't say gonna. We already did. That's how we're born, with the sinful heart. That's the third thing for you kids on your kid sheets. The sinful things we do come from our sinful hearts. The problem of evil is not on the outside, it's on the inside. If the problem is on the outside, it's easy for us as man, as men and women, to fix it. We can do that. But if it's on the inside, it's a problem only God can fix, that only God can solve. And that's why this is a gospel issue. Now, again, I do not personally think that Jesus' goal was to to, uh, destroy all traditions. I mean, uh, pews are kind of tradition for us, right? If you're like, okay, well, pews are a tradition. We need to get rid of pews. What would you sit on then? Maybe the floor? But then the floor would become a tradition, and then what would you have to do? Get rid of the floor. Sometimes you just have to do things because it's practical. 
And so I don't think Jesus is just trying to get rid of all traditions and all the things that we do to help bring order out of the chaos of life. But I think Jesus does want to put their traditions in their proper place, particularly in relation to God's commands. Traditions then and now have become overly important and inflated. Instead of traditions pointing us to Scripture, reminding us of God's word, our traditions quickly start to take the place of Scripture, usurping God's commands, completely blinding us to who God is and what he desires from us. I want you all to look around this morning. Just like, like seriously, like at least pretend for me. Move your heads around and go like this, left and right. Look at just specific things, objects, you know, whatever it is. Almost everything you see as you look around this room has tradition tied to it in some way or another. That cross up there, there's a lot of tradition tied to that. Pews. Stage, pulpit, instruments, piano, drums. What's here, what's not here, tradition. This building, the shape of this building, steeple. I don't know if ours really counts as a steeple officially, but we got a little something back here. Has a little bell or a mic, a speaker in it, I think. Tradition. You know, the time that we meet, Sundays. Tradition. 10 o'clock. Tradition. What I wear. Tradition. Yeah. Try to think of something in here that doesn't have tradition tied to it in some sort of way. It's really hard. The windows. I don't know. It might not be a big deal for you. You don't see them as much, but we used to have like some colored windows. There's a lot of tradition tied into stained glass windows. And how you lie. The direction that we're pointed. You know, it's like even how we pray. Bow your head and close your eyes. Do we have to bow our heads and close our eyes according to Scripture? No, we don't. It doesn't. I'm sorry if I stepped on too many toes. Maybe I went too far just there. It doesn't mean it's wrong. But we've got to be careful when we say something is commanded by God when Scripture doesn't say that. Now, the reason I want you to just ponder all these traditions that we're, we're surrounded by isn't to isn't to try to pick on them individually or, or call them out. I think that's the role of the Holy Spirit in our lives to do. And believe me, I had a long list of things I wanted to like get on my little soapbox in this morning. But Jesus does a lot better at pointing those things out in our lives than I think I can. But I want us all just think about how every single one of these things we see from the pulpit, or pulpit pews, carpet, lighting, instruments, hymns, traditional, contemporary, you know, times that we meet. Just look at all these traditions and think of how many opportunities are there for us to fall into that same temptation that the Pharisees and the scribes had fallen into in washing their hands. Something seemingly simple that you'd look at and be like, that's not really a big deal. And you're right, it shouldn't be a big deal. But how many things like that are traditions that become overstated, overinflated, and we start saying, this is God's command. We are in the same danger. We share in the same danger that these scribes and Pharisees uh, were struggling with in their time. Which one of these traditions, as you look around and you see and you think about it, are commanded by Scripture? Which of these traditions does God demand in order for us to be able to worship Him and for Him to find pleasure within that? Which of these traditions would divide the church if changed or challenged? Which of these traditions would you leave over? My fear for us is that, again, we're in the same exact danger as the scribes and Pharisees and the Jews, the people who were following them. Every single one of those traditions is a threat of being added to the commands of God, being mistaken for God-glorifying worship, and being mistaken for making us clean and holy before a righteous God. The Bible tells us that there's only one thing that makes us clean, and that's not hand-washing, it's heart-washing. And that's something only Jesus can do. In Hebrews 10, I don't think I have this one up on the screen for you, but I'll read it to you. In Hebrews 10, 10 through 12, it says this, We have been sanctified. It's a fancy word for washed. You have been washed through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. Amen? 
And every priest, I love the contrast. You have been washed once and all by Jesus Christ in contrast to the priest who stands daily at his service repeatedly doing the same sacrifice over and over, washing their hands, making sacrifices. And that never worked then, and it's never going to work now. And it says that, and as he continues on in, in uh, verse 11, it says these things, the priests daily, standing daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, they can never take away sins. But when Christ has offered all, for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Where is our hope? Where's our confidence? In the gospel of Jesus Christ or is it in our traditions? Where do we find our joy? Where do we find our assurance? Where do we find our confidence? Is it in doing our traditions or is it in what Jesus Christ has done on the cross for us? For application, as we close the sermon portion here of our service, I want to just give you a couple of questions that I thought are helpful in helping to weed out traditions. That might just be a filter for you to, you know, filter out some of these uh, traditions and submit them to the Lord. First question is, is to ask is, does this tradition add to or take the place of Scripture? If it does, it might need to go. Uh, there's a simple question in trying to resolve this issue is, hath God said? Did God truly say? And I've heard a lot of statements recently about the church should be this, it has to do this, and if we don't have this, then we can't do this. And we have to take all of those statements and we have to say, hath God said? And the only way you can do that is to go to Scripture and find a passage of Scripture that you can put with that. And if you cannot, that has become a tradition of the elders and of man. It needs to be dealt with in your life, in the life of our church. Part of that also is, are you calling sin something sin that God does not call a sin? Um, does that make sense? That's what the, the Pharisees and scribes did. You're not washing your hands. And Jesus challenged them on that. Like, hey, let's, let's look and see what Scripture really says. Be cautious. If you find yourself finding great deal of joy going around and condemning others in their sin, and you haven't looked for the role of traditions in your own life, in your own sin, you probably got a tradition and a religion that's exalting itself above the gospel of Jesus Christ. Second question here, does it force God's instruction, uh, God's instruction to you onto others? There are, there are specific ways that God leads us as individuals and decisions that we make for our time and our circumstances that we find ourselves in. It is very easy to take that conviction that God is showing and wants us to do and transfer that onto other people. I'll take an easy one that we've struggled with in the past in our American church here is alcohol, you know, and drinking. Uh, that's one of those things that Scripture does not say thou shalt not. It says do not be drunk. And there are really good reasons why some of us, a lot of us, need to abstain from alcohol. But we have to be very, very careful when we transfer something that God might be leading us to do and say that these other people can never do that or else they are sinning. That's a sign you have forsaken the commandments of God and replaced them with the commandments of man. And so, again, just cautious. These are great filter questions. Another question for you is, has it become a loophole or excuse for disobedience? You will find yourself, when you latch on traditions, you will find yourself taking great pride in that tradition, and yet you will see there is open defiance and disobedience and sin related to God's clear teaching in his word. There are, I'll use an example of fellowshipping with believers. Sometimes people will say, I'm not going to that church because they don't have an organ or they don't have drums. I'll, fight, I'll beat up people on both sides. They'll say they don't have this or that or the other, and Scripture never demands it. And they will find themselves saying they don't have these things, so I'm not going to church. What does God say in his word about going to church and gathering with the believers? Don't forsake it. Did he say it matters whether they have drums or style of hymns or traditional music or anything? Nope, doesn't say a thing. He says you better go. You better get over that tradition. And so that's a sign. 
When, when you're finding yourself walking in open dis- disobedience to the clear teaching of Scripture and latching on, on to something that doesn't have really a lot of biblical clarity to it at all, you've got a different religion that does not lead to life. So if it's become a loophole for, or excuse for disobedience. Another question to ask is, has it become a source of division within the body? And I want to be careful because uh, not all division is because of tradition. But there is a lot of division because of traditions. I would say as a pastor, I'm just throwing out a random percent that has no study in it, but I would say that 95 plus percent of, of division within the body of Christ that I've seen is surrounding things that scripture doesn't even speak to directly. That is a sign that we have sacrificed God's commands for man's for our own preferences, for our own opinions. It's okay. It's okay to have preferences. It's okay to say, I like these things. It's not bad. But when you say, I like these things, and you place them above the word of God, that is evil and wicked and sinful, and we have to repent from it. Preferences or opinions, keep them down here. Soon as we exalt them, we have an idol, and it's not God we're worshiping any longer. And then finally, one last question is, do you rely more on what you are doing to make you clean and right before God than what Christ has done? It's a gospel issue. Are you relying more on what you're doing, where you're going, how much time you're spending, all these other things that we're doing? They're not all necessarily bad and wrong in and of themselves, but if we allow them to take an overly inflated role in, in what we, you know, we, we, we define how our standing before God and how we're doing with these traditions, not good. It's not healthy. We stand on Christ and the gospel of Christ and Christ alone is our foundation. And so in closing, I don't know about you, but I think it's important that we consider, carefully consider our traditions, to hold them up to the light of scripture, to make sure we aren't adding to the word of God, that we aren't choosing our traditions over the word of God, and that we're not establishing our own religious traditions, completely voiding the power and the presence of the great I am.